we're coming to this uh, place in Acts where Stephen is actually put to death. And, and this has been building now in several weeks uh, throughout the scripture. And, uh, and so this has been preached a lot of different times in history, obviously. And I've looked at it before. And today, I, this week, or as I prepare for this sermon, uh, I'm seeing something that I never fully studied or thought about before. I, I can't blame it on, oh, I just realized it. Uh, it's more like you should have looked at that a little closer. And so I'm calling it when heaven's judge, it's supposed to be arises. I, I didn't mean to put arrives. I probably messed that up. Uh, but um, it should be arises. When heaven's judge arises. In other words, when he stands up. Because you remember the text. I'm sure you've read it before. Y'all read ahead, don't you? Because you know what I'm going to... Next week I'm going to be preaching on whatever comes next, right? All right, so I know y'all are reading ahead. And, and you saw there that Stephen looks at heaven and sees Jesus standing up. And he's not standing up, as us preachers properly like to say, to welcome his martyr home. He's standing up in judgment on those who are killing Stephen. That's why he stood up. And I'll show you that, uh, hopefully, uh, a little bit in Scripture. But uh, something I want you to take home with you today is that the Holy Spirit will lead you perfectly in imperfect circumstances. The Holy Spirit will lead you perfectly in imperfect circumstances. And, and that's an understatement. Stephen's circumstances were less than ideal, wouldn't you say? And yet he is so focused on the Holy Spirit, he doesn't miss a beat. He, it's, it's almost as if... He's oblivious to anything going on around him. And that takes the filling and the grace of God. I grew up uh, during the first televised war, during the Vietnam War. And, and as it, it came to an end, I, I was too young for the draft or anything else. But I remember as a little kid thinking about, because you saw it on television, you saw it on the evening news, you saw things happening. And I know those of you who may have been in war that it doesn't even come close to touching what is the actual reality when you experience it. But I remember as a kid, because I thought about, you know, the military, wanting to be in the military, that kind of thing. Grew up, right there was the Charleston Naval Shipyard. My daddy was a World War II Naval veteran, and, and uh, until uh, they built a hotel over there in the Navy Yard, I could lie in my bed at night, look out my window, and see the lights of ships going up the Cooper River, going to their, to their docks in the, in, the, in the shipyard. And I remember thinking as a kid, that if you went into the military, that was an automatic death sentence. That you're going to go to war and die. That's just a kid processing what he's hearing and seeing and, 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 and going on. And then, you know, expressing that at some point, my parents helped me explain, your dad was in the military, he didn't die. His brothers were in the army and different things, and they didn't die. You know, that not everybody that goes in the military dies or, or, or whatever. But as a kid, I remember thinking about, how afraid I would be to be in that situation where I knew that I may not live. Here we have in the scripture a man who knows beyond any shadow of a doubt he's about to die. And he doesn't even flinch. Uh, stand with me. Let's read these verses. Beginning in verse 54 going through 60. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your throne room, we are talking about things that we have never faced. And just like myself as a child, seeing war and death on television and being afraid of going to fight because it would mean my death. So, Lord, you call us to die daily, and yet we're afraid to do it. We're afraid to follow you and to die daily to ourselves that we might live unto you. Our life is wrapped up in this world instead of wrapped up in the things above, the things that are not of this earth, as you told us in Colossians. Since we're risen with Christ to set our affection, our love, our desire, our want, our efforts on the things above, not on things on this earth. And we directly disobey that verse Every day. And so, Lord, if anybody ever were to stick a gun in our head and say, deny Christ or die. If we're not already dying for you, why would we die physically for you at that point? And so, Lord, teach us today to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. For there is a day coming, unlooked for, undesired, but a day we cannot escape. When we will step out of this body and this life into life eternal. And that day we stand before the throne. And we hear your voice, either well done or depart. And Lord, we long to hear well done. So may this day we understand what it means to live the life that you've called us to live. That we might die a death that honors you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Young, be seated if you want. Again, the Holy Spirit can, can, will lead us perfectly in these most imperfect circumstances. I, 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 I want you to see because in this text there are four big contradictions that are just embedded there and you have to see it. And the first one that I want us to look at is that there is anger toward a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a, a group of people who are angry and a guy just peacefully following the Holy Spirit. And we see that in the first little bit there that when they heard these things they were enraged and ground their teeth at him but he, full of the Holy Spirit, He's gazing into heaven, the verse goes on to say. I want you to look at that and, and think about that, that they are enraged. They're grinding their teeth. Now, we read that, and you can just imagine being, you know, I don't know how you ever thought about it, but again, as a kid growing up, you know, as you read that, you just get this under people like that, and thinking that's what it, it means. But are there other places in the Bible where people grind their teeth? Yeah, there are. And guess where people grind their teeth? Well, it's in Matthew. Uh, you can turn over there if you want, because I really want you to see it. Look at Matthew 8. That'd be a good place to start. I know a lot of y'all got electronic Bibles, but I sure do like to hear pages rustling. It lets me know you're actually turning over to, in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 8, and look at verse 12. Jesus is talking to this same group of Pharisees and Sadducees. And he says, while the sons of the kingdom 
uh, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you want to relate it, Luke 13 tells the same thing. And what he's saying to them is, you're going to see people that you don't think go to heaven in heaven. And you yourselves, though you were Jews of the kingdom, are going to be cast into hell where they're gnashing their teeth. You say, well, that you just proof text. And okay, then turn over to Matthew 13. Because Jesus repeats this. In Matthew 13 and verse 42. Jesus says there. And, thrown, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, of course, he's just speaking figuratively, right? Okay, well, then look at verse 50. Where he repeats it in case you didn't hear it the first time. I'll, I'll back up to 49. So it'll be at the end of the age. The angels will come and will separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the same word in Acts 7. They come at steving, gnashing their teeth. It is, a, it is anger. But guess what? There is no love in hell. And in hell for eternity, men are going to be angry at God, gnashing their teeth. Because one element of being apart from God is not taking personal responsibility. And so they're going to be condemning God for putting them in hell when they put themselves there. Because they never bowed their knee to him. Are you following me? They are angry and hateful toward God. These people in Acts 7 are not mad or hateful toward Stephen. He just happens to be the object of that wrath. Their anger and wrath is against, right? In Ephesians 6, and Paul tells us, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We always make this mistake. We think our enemy looks like the person that he's feeling to give us grief. But that's not our enemy. The enemy is the power behind that person. The, the Satan that hates us and wants to destroy us and kill us. And Satan is so mad at God, he's grinding his teeth at God. And people in hell for eternity are grinding their teeth at God. And when they heard these things, well, what did they just hear? Well, they heard back there in verse uh, 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of you prophets, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered to angels and did not keep it. He just told them, you are the guys that put Jesus to death. He was the Messiah and you killed him. And hearing that, they come in anger. I'm telling you, you, you say the name Jesus and people get angry. I, how many of you saw the movie The Patriot? Raise your hand. Go ahead. It's cool. It's all right. If you watch that movie, it, you're not sinning. All right, good. Some of y'all are like, can I admit I watched a movie in church? Yeah, of course. One of my favorite things is they, they tell the character to go recruit an army. And the guy says, how are we going to do it? He goes... I, I don't know, here's an idea. And he goes into a pub-like thing, and he says, long live the king. And then they have to jump out, and all these axes and knives hit the door, and he goes, I think we're in the right place. <laughs> I promise you, you go into a room and you start talking about Jesus, people are going to get divided really fast. 
They're going to either love you or hate you. And, and we are called to be hated for Christ's sake. We make salvation about, oh, you come to Christ, everything's great, everything's wonderful. No, it's, it's a call to die to follow Jesus. It is a call to be put to death, to live in a way that to die is gain, is what Paul said. Remember, he said, man, I'm stuck between two hard decisions. Because if to stay is helpful to you, but for me, to die is good for me. Because to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Heaven never takes away, it always adds. The only reason we should feel sorrow at the death of someone we love is we've, this week we've had two of our loved ones go to heaven. And we cry and feel sorrow because we miss them and we love them and we desire to be able to communicate with them, touch them. But this is a temporary separation for those who are in Christ. So the Bible says that we grieve not as those who have no hope. We don't grieve like people who have no hope. I, first church I ever pastored, this whole family came to know the Lord except one brother. There was three brothers and a sister. And the two brothers and a sister, the mom, the dad all got saved. The dad died and we are in the church, the funeral, the casket's there. People are crying, they're sorrowful, the family's sorrowful. But that little boy, that I call him little boy, he was, I don't know, about 6'3", about 3'20". He's a huge dude, but he was the youngest guy. And he's down there, and he's broken and sobbing over his father's casket. And I saw his mom put her hand on his back and say, Son, we miss your dad too, but we're going to see him again. And if you don't accept Christ, you will never see him again. You'll be in hell. Now, I'll tell you, that takes some guts. But she spoke the truth to that young man. I wish I could tell you he got saved. I don't know that he ever did. But that is the truth, and that is the hope that we have. But look at the contradiction. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of grace. Here are these people enraged and he's calm as he can be. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to describe because we see the second, the second uh, juxtaposition of realities. There's blindness toward a man who can see. Look what he saw. It says, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Remember last week we talked about Stephen's talking about the glory of God. And that the glory is the summation of all God is. That he, when, when Moses said let me look at you. And he says well I'll let you see me. But you can't look at my face because I'll kill you. And he stuck him in a cleft of the rock. Put his hand over his face. Walked past him. And let him see the back of him. And he saw God's glory. And John 1, that we behold the one who was, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, I should say. And verse 14, and we, and that Word put on flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His full of grace and truth. As He gazes into heaven, He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing there. And so, Jesus is standing. Well, does that have a special meaning? Yes. In Psalm 110 and verse 1, and by the way, remember, these are Jewish leaders. These are the teachers of the law. In Psalm 110, 1, the Bible says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What happens after Jesus' enemies are made his footstool? He's coming back, right? He's coming back to judge. So in Psalm 110, 1, the Bible lets them know that the Messiah, whoever he is, will be seated at the right hand of God until his enemies, not our enemies, 
his enemies are made his footstool. And then he will come back and judge the whole world, right? Y'all follow me? I know this is very in generalities, but are you following that? When Stephen looks into heaven, is Jesus seated or standing? Hebrews 1 tells us that the, God sent many prophets in many different ways. He told the people throughout history, but they, Stephen already told them, you killed all those guys. And Hebrews 1 says, but in these last days, he's spoken through the son who sat down. You see, when he'd finished the work, Jesus sat down because now court's in session. He's about to hear the case. Well, the first case he hears, he stands up to judge those who are committing the crime against himself. I'm I'm just thinking how to run down this road because it's a good road. What did Jesus say to Paul when he knocked him down the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? Why do you persecute that Christian? Why do you persecute that child? Why do you kick the dog? No, why do you persecute me? Jesus said in judgment, he'll say, I was hungry, you didn't feed me, I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink, I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And they go, Lord, when would we ever see that? He said, when you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. When they were killing Stephen, they were killing Jesus anew, as far as Jesus was concerned. And he stands up and says, uh-uh. And it's judgment time. So I think that's a little extreme, but we'll hang on if you think that's extreme. Because notice what Stephen says. He saw that and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, I know if I were you sitting there and I heard me just say what I just said and you didn't know any better, didn't trust me, or I didn't trust me, I wouldn't believe me. But listen to Daniel seven thirteen and 14. Daniel saw this. In the, night, in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is where Jesus, the Messiah, gets the title, the son of man. Because the Messiah is going to be all God, all man, all at the same time. Jesus was never anything less, uh, more than a man. He was never anything less than God. Yet, now this is how we say it to understand it. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man... And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And Stephen as they are coming at him, looks up and says, I see the Son of Man. And they all realize he's talking about the Messiah. I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He stood up. And what they understood was he just claimed... Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of Man, predicted by Daniel, and he's standing in judgment of them. You say, I, I, I still, I don't quite follow that. We'll read what they did. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. He's just telling them what he saw. 
And they are so mad. They, they are afraid they will sin if they hear it. And they try to close their ears and rush at him. Because they don't want him to claim Jesus as the Messiah. Because here's their options. Jesus is the Messiah. He's standing at the right hand of God, the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, in heaven. And we either going to believe that, but if we do, we have to admit that we killed him when God sent him to us. And they couldn't do that, or they wouldn't do that. They could have, but they wouldn't. And so they rush, and so we see murder towards a man who cannot die. Here, here they are enraged and angry. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's telling them, guys, this is what I'm seeing. Obviously, Stephen at this point goes, I'm just going to be leaving here soon because there he is. And I'm going that way. And they're rushing at him to kill him with murder in their heart and blindness to what he's saying. And they come at him with murder and they're going to kill a man who cannot die. You ever thought how much Stephen's like Jesus? Thrown outside the city to be killed. You'll see that in a minute. Charged with blasphemy. Convicted of unlawful charges or inaccurate charges. Wrongfully accused. Wrongfully convicted. Wrongfully put to death. And as he dies, he loves and forgives those who are putting him to death. And he sees possibly what Jesus saw. He is exactly like Jesus. There's this this illegal stunning. They cried out loud voice. Stop there. Rush at him. Verse 58. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. I'll come back to that in a second. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What did Jesus say from the cross? Lord, to thy hands I commend my spirit. Now, I don't want to get into the graphics of stoning, but again, as a kid, I'd read about stoning, and I thought everybody was just throwing little rocks at him. I grew up in Charleston. The biggest natural rock there is about that big, you know. And now we live where we got big old rocks, right? Rocks you and I can't move. Well, Israel's number one crop that they have is rocks. I mean, they they got a bunch of rocks. And so what they would do is they... The law said you couldn't throw a rock bigger than, you couldn't use a rock bigger than you couldn't pick up and throw. So they'd put the guy at the bottom and they'd stand over him on a cliff and drop it on his head. And if that didn't kill him, they'd drop another one. And if that didn't kill him, they came down and pelted him with big rocks until the life goes out of his body. By the way, they stoned Paul and when they went away, he got up and walked away. I think God raised Paul from the dead that day too and healed him totally because that's how you stone people. And they start stoning Stephen illegally. And Saul approves. Guess what? This is the third time of the third time they had a chance to repent. God gave them Abraham, a man of faith. Abraham believed God's counting him righteousness. But in Jacob, they rejected that. That scene in Joseph, Stephen told them that. They rejected the law of Moses. They rejected Moses and the law that he brought because they made a golden calf while he was bringing them the law of God. They killed all the prophets who preached in the law. And in these last days, they reject. So the father sent his son. Remember Jesus told that parable? Man owned a vineyard and he sent one of his workers to collect the rent. They killed him. So he sent another guy and they killed him. Sent another. If I'll send my son, they'll respect him. And they killed the son. 
Now this is becoming clear to them what they have done. They've killed all the prophets. Stephen laid this out in the sermon. And now he says, and you've killed the Son of God. Sent to you to repent. Well, that's three opportunities. But this is the third of three because they arrested Peter and John. And they told them the gospel. Then after that, they arrest all 11 apostles. There are 12. And they preach the gospel to them. And now Stephen, the first deacon... And the first martyr. And he tells them the gospel. They've had chance after chance after chance after chance to repent. How many times has God spoken to you. About what he wants you to do. Whether it's repent and be saved. Whether it's to give your life to him in total service. How many times is he going to have to tell you. Before. He picks a guy like Saul, who watches this. His leader, Gamaliel, a couple chapters back, says, Guys, we, we might not ought to kill these guys, because if it's from God, you can't stop it. If it's not from God, it'll, it'll die on its own. And here you got this rabid, zealot guy like Saul going, Are you kidding me, Gamaliel? We don't know that happened. I'm making this part up. Okay, I'm, I'm honest in the pulpit. I'll tell you when I'm just making stuff up. I'm making this up. But I'm thinking at the very least, Saul had to start thinking, what's up with Gamaliel? He taught me all this about the law, and now he's kind of denying the law and let these people do what they want. And so he is in that council. He heard when Peter and John preached. He heard when the 12 preached. He hears Stephen's sermon. And Paul, and it says, Stephen, in that debate, they couldn't answer his questions. What question could you ask Saul about the law that he couldn't answer? Answer, nothing. He was brilliant. He understood it. He knew it. He was the Jew of Jews, he will tell you later. And they lay their cloaks at his feet and he watches this guy die and he heard what he said. And he goes on his own rampage to kill Christians. And one day God, Jesus knocks him down and goes, it's kind of hard for you to keep persecuting me, isn't it, boy? Now you get up and go in the city and I'll send somebody to help you out. And what happens to Saul? Because you won't find an Acts where anybody stood before this council again in this way and presented the gospel. And in the midst of their last chance, God is saving, starting that process of saving the one who will be the missionary to you and me, to us Gentiles. Do you see the beauty of why this story is in such detail in the middle of Acts? Not only is it because it's about the first martyr. But it's about that through his death, God is bringing about salvation to the Gentiles. Because so far, no Gentiles have gotten saved. That didn't happen until Acts 13. We're in Acts 7. By the way, timeline-wise, this is about a year after Jesus' death. All this has happened within a year. This is very close to, still close to Jesus' death. And Saul approved of this death. And the fourth thing we see in this big thing, and I I just wanted you to see that because it's subtle in there, but it's once you see it, it's like you can't see anything else. There's hatred toward a man who's full of love. They hate him. And they were stoning Stephen. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And look at verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he died this bloody, horrible, violent death. 
I like that Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he went to sleep. Went to sleep. Stephen didn't feel rock number one. Stephen doesn't care about them gnashing their teeth. All he can see is the judge of, of eternity and of the universe standing. And he's going to be with him. And he says, hey, forgive them. Just like Jesus did on the cross. Father, lay not the sin to their charge. Don't kill them. Don't. He forgives his murder and he falls asleep in the arms of Jesus. Good night. What a story. We like to say what a man, but I'd rather say what a spirit-filled man. Because walking in the spirit in less than ideal circumstances, he does not flinch. In hell, people still won't repent. Two thieves on a cross in the exact same circumstance seeing the exact same thing. One repents, one does not. Don't tell me if conditions are right, people will be right. No, we're right when we look at God and let God change our lives, right? And here in Acts, we see this beautiful story. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? Well, I got a long sentence and then just a question. The long sentence is, are you so full of the Holy Spirit, having your spiritual eyes open, living eternal life full of love? Here's what I mean by that. Are you... Are you filled with the Spirit? Well, you say, what does it take to be filled with the Spirit? Well, I already told you. First, you've got to be saved. Secondly, you have to be emptied of yourself. You say, what does it mean to be emptied of myself? What I want? <laughs> you know, the number one drive of a, of a single man or a young lady is to get married. Have a boyfriend or girlfriend, according to the age. Y'all looking at me like that's not true. All you married people, come on. You're not that, you don't. You didn't lose your total memory, did you? My, my mom died last year. My sister brought a bunch of stuff up that she cleaned out of the house. And there was this magic trunk. We didn't know what was in it. So we opened it. We started looking. We found my mom's scrapbook from when she was 16. And there's a bunch of movie stars pictures in there. Tyrone Power, you know, those guys. Really old movie stars, you know. But it was a 16-year-old girl. I never thought of my mom as a 16-year-old girl. Right? So, they want a boyfriend, girlfriend. We just get older, our desires change, but they become no less intense, and they're still selfish. What do I want? Where do I want to work? Where do I want to go? What do I want to do? What about what God wants? Does God even want you to be married? And if he does, are you, do you trust him enough to pick out your mate? Or do, or do you got to decide, because God might make you marry an ugly person. That's how we thought back then, right? I don't know about you, but that's how I grew up. But are you, so, are you emptied of your own desires and, 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 and wishes so that you can be filled with God's desires and wishes? Are your spiritual eyes open? The Bible says in Corinthians that, that the lost can't even understand this because they are spiritually discerned. And when, when we get saved, it's just like when you're a kid and you're learning to read. You, you learn and you get better and better and better. So in the spiritual life as we grow in Christ. And, and for me, I still pray when I read the scripture, Lord, open my eyes so I can see wonderful things out of your law. That's what it says in Psalm 119. That God has to open our eyes to understand. It says in Corinthians, you can't understand this with, with the logic of man. This is a work of God. So are your spiritual eyes open? So that when circumstances are going bad, you see it spiritually and not physically. We're living in a weird time in our country. 
And are you seeing all this news and all this craziness and we vote on Tuesday? Are you seeing all that with spiritual eyes or with eyes of the flesh? Ask God to show you spiritually what you ought to do. Are you, are you living an eternal life? I have already died. I will not die again. My spirit's going to leave my body one day and I'm going to move from here to heaven. But I will never die. I'm already dead. And if you're living like you're already dead, death doesn't hold such a power over you. And are you full of love as you go? Boy, that one's hard for me. I, 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 that goes back to being filled with the spirit. You've got to be filled with the spirit to love, right? Especially the way God loves we can love selfishly. We can't love like God loves. Somebody does us bad, wrong. You know, you come up and tell me, somebody said something ugly to me. I'm going to turn to Acts 7 and go, well, look at what they did to Stephen. <laughs> so what's your complaint? <laughs> oh, they, they called you a bad name. Woo. Big deal. <laughs> can you love people who don't love you? That's what Jesus did. That's what God did. That's what Stephen's doing. So the question is, how is all that evident in your life? How is all that evident in your life? How do you respond? There is a great book called Safely Home written by Randy Alcorn. I'm saying it slowly and distinctly so you'll write it down and get it and read it. And it's about the story. It's a fictional story. And Randy Alcorn also wrote a book about heaven. He's the only guy. Nobody's researched the subject of heaven scripturally more than Randy Alcorn. And in this book, it's a, it's a novel, and it's an American guy and a Chinese guy. And the Chinese guy came to America to go to college. And at the time, the American guy was saved, and the Chinese guy was running from Jesus. So the American leads him back to faith in Christ. Well, the Chinese guy's dad had been martyred. His grandfather had been martyred. They were martyrs in China for Christ. And then the guy moves back to China and the American thinks that he went back to be a businessman or engineer just and he became a businessman. Well, in his life, he got more and more greedy and he moved away from God. And then one day his company wants to send him to China because he had always talked about his Chinese friend and they thought he knew Chinese. So they send him to find the guy. When he finds him, he's an assistant watchmaker. He's not an engineer. He's not making tons of money. And he's a witness for Christ in China. And the Chinese man brings the American back to faith in Christ. But within the book, the Chinese man is martyred. And the cool thing about the book is it shows heaven's perspective, the earth's perspective. Heaven's perspective, the earth's perspective. And in the book, his father and grandfather are watching him and they keep having a conversation with Jesus. They call him Yesu, which is Hebrew, Yeshua, Christ, Jesus. And, and they call heaven Karis, because I'm going to read you something. When Randy wrote the book, Mr. Alcorn wrote the book, he dedicated it to a modern martyr named, um, i got to find his name right here. Um, well, I had it a second ago. Um, anyway, uh, Graham Staines. And Graham Staines ministered to lepers in India. And they came to kill him, and he had his sons. One was about 9 or 10, the other was 12 or so. And they burned the house down around him. His wife and daughter escaped. His daughter was 13. She said, I am grateful that God thought my father worthy enough to die for him. And the wife kept working with the lepers. Y'all remember the five guys in South America that died back in the 50s? Jim Elliott and Nate Sainer, the two most well-known, but there were five of them. Now that I've caught you up to speed, let me read you what Randy Alcorn wrote. After the character in the 
and the book dies and goes to heaven. There's a bunch of cool things in there. But in one scene, his father takes him into a room where the martyrs have met so that he can be introduced to the rest of the martyrs. Lee Kwan's father, all three of them, his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, introduced him to brothers and sisters from Indonesia, Libya, Vietnam, and Iran. I am Mehdi Dibdab. Welcome. A man with deep black skin, a huge grin greeted him. Benjamini Yuhana, once ambassador to Sudan, now on home assignment. By the way, they tell jokes in heaven in the book. I like that part. Three light-skinned males approached him. I'm Graham Staines. These are my sons, Philip and Timothy. Your father told us all about you. Another step forward. I'm Juan Coy, once of Colombia, now of Caris. Juan wanted to talk at length, but each martyr he with each martyr he met, but Li Tong eagerly grabbed his arm. Now is the time to meet many whom you can seek out later. I wish to introduce you to five who've become my good friends. They arrived in Karis not long before I did. Quan looked at the five men, one of whom reminded him of Ben. These are my brothers, said Lee Tong, Nate, Pete, Ed, Roger, and Jim. We are honored to meet Lee Quan, said one of them. You have given what you could not keep to gain what you cannot lose, and what you've gained is immeasurable. The men embraced Quan, shared stories, and laughed together. Now, it was Lee Manchu who took Quan's arm and spun him around the other direction. This is a special guest, invited to join the Fellowship of Martyrs on this occasion. He is a man who did surgery upon my eyes when I was a small child. It is he who led me to Yeshu when I was a child. Hudson Taylor, Quan asked. Yes, the man said. No relation to Elizabeth, he smiled. Then looked at Quan earnestly. I've watched you, interceded for you. It is a great privilege to meet Lee Quan face to face. Lee Quan was speechless. Then he felt a hand on his shoulder again. It was Lee Tong standing next to a little man with a bright face. This is my only son, Lee Quan, and this Quan is the first of our kind. Our brother, Stephen. Do you want that for you in heaven? Not martyrdom, but do, do you want to get to meet the saints of the ages? 